Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 98. We were oh, 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 so close to a Victory Monday. I had the audio loaded up. I was already there mentally. And then the fourth quarter happened. And Joe Barry happened. And Matt LaFleur happened. It all happened. A confluence of everything in a disastrous fourth quarter. But a lot to like about what happened on Sunday, despite the way that it ended. That was a 2008 Packers game. I'll explain myself when it comes to that coming up in a second. But that, we got to watch the 2008 Packers on Sunday again. The Badgers got a win, and they covered against Georgia Southern. It was not pretty. I would say it was another Christian kind of game, but it's the first cover in the Luke Fickle era. Small steps. We'll take that. Conference opener coming up on Friday at Purdue. Brewers' Operation Just Win series continued to roll. Not great on Sunday in extra innings. That whole last hour of yesterday of the end of the Packer game, flipping over the Brewer game, and having that end the way it did, not the best hour of my weekend, I'll grant you that. Brewers keep winning, though, series, and the Cubs keep losing, and the magic number keeps shrinking. October baseball is so close, we can taste it. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! The Brewers win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center! Snap. He looks, he throws, it's a And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Speaking of against the spread, Packers are 2-0 against the spread, and that's all that matters. Good teams win, great teams cover. That was all the way to a two and a half, or in some books, a three-point spread in favor of the Falcons. We talked on Friday's podcast about how it went from Packers minus one to Packers plus one and a half. That was a lot. Then all the inactives came out, and we'll talk about David Bakhtiari in a second. All of the inactives came out. No Jones, no Watson, no Bakhtiari. Quay Walker did play and played pretty well despite the dropped interception. When all those came out, another point was tacked on to the Falcons' spread. They became minus two and a half, and in some books, they were minus three. Losing by one is a cover. Packers cover. That's the type of game, though, Sunday's game where if you have the over on season wins, which I do, which we talked about during the season win total over under podcast. If you have the over on seven and a half and you already thought going into it, eight, nine win team, which we talked about, maybe 10 wins on the high side. That kind of a loss on Sunday is going to just gut you when you get to the end of the year, if they go seven, 10 or something like that. I still think they're an eight, nine, 10 win team, despite Sunday's loss. That's the type of loss, though, that's just going to make you want to cry if they fall one game short of the over on whatever the over under is, in this case, seven and a half. That's a brutal loss for the season win total over under. Overall, though, we're going to talk about this game overall, in general, and then we're going to do some things we didn't like and some things we like. This was the 2008 Packers, though, just as a broad statement. Remember that year 
the first year of Aaron Rodgers, and we were all optimistic about what Rodgers could be, maybe more so than we were about Jordan Love coming into this year because we saw more flashes of Rodgers prior to the 2008 season. We were optimistic about that, but that was a young team across the board. They were young basically everywhere. It was the beginning of a new era. They went 6-10 and 10 that year, but they easily could have been 10-6. and six. I actually went back. Why I did this, I don't know, because it was a frustrating year. But it made me feel better about Sunday. I went back and looked at the season schedule from 2008. And I can't tell you, there are so many games lose by one, lose by three, lose in overtime, lose by two. And when you go back and you look by the at the blow-by-blow blow in some of those games, it was exactly like Sunday's game in Atlanta where they had the lead or had a lead, had a double-digit lead or something close to that seven points, eight points, let it fade away at the end. A lot of those games, they were down, then they'd come back, they'd get a lead with a minute or two left, defense couldn't hold its end of the bargain. Sometimes the defense would give up a lead, but Aaron Rodgers would have a chance to bring him back with under a minute to go like Jordan Love did on Sunday, couldn't quite get it done. That's the way that year played out, and that's what happens with young teams. It was probably literally six of their ten losses that year where a couple of things go one way or the other, and they probably could have been wins. That's what we witnessed on Sunday in Atlanta, a team that's just not quite sure how to close games, not certain how to finish teams when you have a 24-12 to lead at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Let's start at the start. I love the flea flicker. I love that to start the game. Going into the game with all the injuries, and we're going to talk about the injuries a little bit later, with all the injuries they had, with no Aaron Jones and no Christian Watson and no David Bakhtiari, you had to think the Falcons were thinking the first play of the game was just going to be a run. Try to establish the run. Try to establish A.J. Dillon and get that component of their offense working and then try to expand with a young quarterback. They had to think a run was coming on first down and 10. To fake that, to do the flea flicker, get the ball downfield, get defensive pass interference, I love that aggressive start from Matt LaFleur. A lot of things I didn't love from Matt LaFleur in the fourth quarter. And that aggressiveness we saw in the opening drive, I wish that would have stayed until the end of that opening drive. And I wish he would have stayed with that in the fourth quarter when he got ultra conservative. The end of this drive, though, you get that defensive pass interference. You put yourself inside the Falcons 30. After that, it's just a mess of game management and penalties. It ends up being a 51-yard field goal attempt for Anders Carlson. Somehow... They get a delay of game. How that happens when the prior play was nothing where it would be controversial or you'd be arguing something or looking at replays, the play play previous to that had no question marks next to it. As soon as that play was over, special teams should be sprinting out on the field or getting out on the field as quickly as possible, getting set up, and kicking that ball with 10 seconds left on the play clock. There was nothing that was up in the air about the prior play that would have delayed them getting on the field. I don't know how that happens. That's a Rich Passaccia thing, even though I like Rich Passaccia. That's a Packers special teams thing, and that's a Matt LaFleur game management thing, not seeing that play clock bleed down and then calling a timeout. The other thing I didn't quite get there is, okay, you go from 51 to 56, not ideal. It's already a tough field goal at 51, although it's indoors, and we know Carlson has that leg. You go to 56, and at the end of the game, Matt LaFleur said he thought that was out of Carlson's range. Carlson hit a 57-yarder outdoors in the preseason. Circumstances different, but you're in a climate-controlled environment. If you can hit from 57 outdoors, I don't know why you wouldn't attempt that early in the game, a 56-yarder indoors. That made little sense to me. Everything after the flea flicker on that first drive was not great. And then the first quarter was sort of blah. They were down 3 nothing. Then they got their traction in the second quarter, and this is where Jordan Love started to play really well. 
had the Jaden Reed shovel pass, nine-yard touchdown run, first-ever touchdown for Jaden Reed. He showcased elite speed. The comparisons with Jaden Reed all offseason since they drafted him have been to Randall Cobb because of his size and speed. He may be faster than 2011 Randall Cobb. That was an elite X button on Jaden Reed to get to the corner, get his foot on the pylon, and get the Packers the lead. They tack on that field goal from Anders Carlson. Three minutes left to go in the second quarter. That was after the turnover on downs, which would have been or could have been a Jair Alexander pick six. We'll talk more about that coming up. A lot of opportunities that the defense lent go by the wayside. Packers got the turnover on downs instead of the interception and potential pick six. They turn that into a field goal. Then the Falcons do get down the field. Drake London, three-yard touchdown pass from Desmond Ritter. Got it to a 10-9 game. Koo missed the extra point. Packers up at halftime. Third quarter was a great quarter. The popular sentiment I saw on Twitter was that this team melted down the second half. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They melted down the fourth quarter. The third quarter was actually a really good quarter. Packers come out with that one-point lead. They get a stop, and then on the next drive, Jordan Love with a pass to Dontavian Wicks. Wicks makes an excellent catch in traffic, breaks one tackle, gets into the end zone, his first career touchdown, 32-yarder. Packers up 17-9. They hold him to a field goal after that on a 13-play drive. Then the Packers go down the field again, four plays, 78 yards. Jaden Reed, second touchdown pass from Jordan Love. He was able to elevate that pass over an outstretched defender's arm on the edge, put just a little extra air under it to get it to Reed, who took it to the end zone, 24-12, to and the vibes are good. You're thinking 12-point lead, full quarter to go, young team, but you felt like you were in a good spot. And then the fourth quarter happened, and it was everything. I know, and we'll talk here in a minute about the biggest reasons they lost and some of that kind of stuff and power ranking, the things we did not like. Certainly the defense probably tops that list for a lot of people. This was a team collapse in the fourth quarter. For whatever reason, and I did see this note in the game recap. I had a buddy on a group text send us this early in the morning that the 12-point lead, blowing a 12-point lead, was the first time they've blown a double-digit lead to begin a fourth quarter since the 2014 NFC Championship game. Is that what I needed to see? Is that something I needed to see or hear? Thanks for putting that in the ESPN recap article. But when I read that, I started to think back to that game and some of the same stuff. The defense just started making dumb mistakes. They got into a soft zone, and the offensive play calling became ultra-conservative. For the most part, even with all the injuries, I thought the play calling was good up until the fourth quarter. And Jordan Love was really good up until the fourth quarter. Falcons get on the board on that Desmond Ritter six-yard touchdown run. It, to me, it was Ritter's legs that gave them the biggest fits in terms of Desmond Ritter. He had the touchdown pass. He had the deep ball. I think it was on that drive, or maybe it was the drive right after that. He had that deep ball on the play-action fake that Darnell Savage just could not get a hand on in a one-on-one -on -one situation. He had a couple of nice throws. He doesn't look to me like he is going to be a very good pocket quarterback, accurate quarterback. That said, Ritter's legs were a problem in the second half and in the fourth quarter on Sunday. All of the rushing attack for the Falcons was an issue. Bijan Robinson looks to be the real deal. Top 10 pick as advertised. He gave the Packers fits all day. The rush defense was a disaster most of the day. In the second half, specifically the fourth quarter, Desmond Ritter's ability to see the pocket break down, not be comfortable throwing it to anybody, but to be able to pick up five to seven yards with his legs, 
that was a killer too. He wasn't getting big chunks like we saw Colin Kaepernick back in the day and Mike Vick back in the day. He was doing enough though. He was doing enough to get his teams in better down and distance situations. That to me was the most valuable part of Ritter's game on Sunday. I do not think he's a very good pure quarterback. And if you had me make a bet, I would say at some point this year, injuries aside, if he's fully healthy, at some point the Falcons will make a quarterback switch. His ability, though, to run and beat the Packers that way by picking up four, five, six yards every time the pocket would break down or the Packers would get too far upfield, that was a major element of the Falcons being able to come back and win. He gets that six-yard touchdown run, makes it 24-19, and then the Packers' ensuing drive, Three runs to A.J. Dillon, that's what we're going to do after you let Jordan Love throw it around pretty much all day and distribute the ball to a lot of different young wide receivers in a situation where you're up by five and a field goal makes you feel good. You're up by eight. You put the Falcons in a spot where they have to pass the ball, which is where you want Desmond Ritter. You want to get him out of that run game. Those were the offensive play calls. That was Mike McCarthy in the 2014 NFC Championship game. I did not understand that. They got to third and one. A.J. Dillon... (laughs) Couldn't pick up the first down. Then we had the mess with Jordan Love, who took accountability for it at the end of the game. He kind of fell over. It looked like on fourth and one, like they were actually going to do the quarterback sneak. Jordan Love said at the end of the game he used the wrong hot route. Hot route. He said the wrong word. Whatever the word was that was going to signal the snap back to him from Josh Myers so he could do the quarterback sneak. And it looked like he would have gotten it on one yard. He had a lot of space to that right side. That's where he was going. He said the wrong word. Myers never snapped the ball, and then Jordan Love fell over like he was at a tequila bar at 1.30 in the morning. He just, no, he never got the football. I think he would have gotten it had he used the right word. You end up giving the ball right back. Falcons get within two on a field goal. Then you can't do anything again. Another three and out. That led to, ultimately, the drive that would seal the game. The Falcons go on a 12-play, 66-yard, five-minute march. They get the clock under a minute. I thought Arthur Smith on that fourth and half a yard inside the Packer 10-yard line with a minute left and the Packers out of timeouts, I thought he was going to go for that. I know you never would because if you don't get it, the game's over. If you get it, the game's over. If you don't get it, the game's over. He had to kick that field goal. They had that tight shot of him on the sideline. It looked like he was thinking, God, if I can get half a yard then this game is over. We'll just take it all the way down. The Packers have no chance. If he kicks the field goal there, which he did, Packers had 50-ish seconds to work with. The last drive was a mess. It was just, it was not good. And, of course, you have Jordan Love. They have that side camera shot of him running out there, and I forget who was on the call yesterday for Fox, where they said, well, like Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre before have done so many times, Jordan Love now has a chance to lead his team back. And yes, they only need a field goal, and he's got to come up bigger in those moments. 45 seconds, no timeouts at your own 25-yard line with a patchwork offensive line and missing your two most dynamic players, that's not an advantageous situation. If you want to say Jordan Love has to get it done in those spots, fine. That's your prerogative. There was a lot working against this team. Jordan Love in his fourth start in the NFL with 45 seconds, no timeouts at his own 25 and missing four key players, especially two protecting him. And when you know you're in a passing situation and the Falcons can pin their ears back and get after you every play, it's tough for me to judge him too harshly on how that last drive looked. It was not good, though. Packers go four and out, and the game ends in a 25-24 to loss. Disappointing, no doubt. It was there. It was right there for you. Like I said off the top, I had Victory Monday. I was already living in that world of Victory Monday. And to just slowly give it away where the defense went to his own, got eight up on the ground, got eight up by Desmond Ritter scrambling around, 
Packer offense got way too conservative, had a bunch of three and outs all in a row. After all day, they were moving the ball pretty effectively most of the afternoon against that Falcon defense to get that conservative in that moment. It was a combination of all those things. The defense, to me, is the number one. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but the offense didn't help. The defense was on the field the entire fourth quarter. The defense going into the game, given the injury situation, you knew they would need a big game. They didn't have a big game. But the offense has to help them a little bit. You've got to pick up a first down or two and at least give them a chance to catch their breath. Now, things that we don't like. We'll go don't like and then like. We'll end on a positive note. And actually, I don't feel terrible. It was a frustrating game. You hate to lose a game like that, but in Jordan Love's first year of his time as the star quarterback in Green Bay, I don't feel that empty. When they were losing games with Aaron Rodgers' as quarterback like that or with Brett Favre's quarterback like that, and you had Super Bowl aspirations every year and every loss felt like you lost a playoff game, I didn't feel that way coming out of yesterday. Things we did not like, we'll start with the defense. That's the number one thing. They gave up almost 470 yards to an offense led by Desmond Ritter. And... You had so many chances to flip the game. Jair Alexander dropped an easy interception that would have been a pick six. Jair had a bad game. He dropped that interception, and then he got posted up, basically, by the bigger Drake London on that first touchdown pass from Desmond Ritter. The thing is, the rush defense has been bad for the last year. It was bad all year last year. It was okay in week one against the Bears, but the Bears may just be a terrible team. And they were really bad against Bijan Robinson and Ritter and the whole crew against Atlanta yesterday. Atlanta had 200-plus yards on the ground, averaging over five yards a carry. The most maddening part of that is that you know passing is not their specialty. Desmond Ritter is not really a get-the-ball-down-the-field kind of quarterback. So you know coming into it they're going to attack you on the ground, and you still could not stop it. 446 total yards given up with two dropped interceptions, the Jair drop and the Quay Walker drop. I guess I'll give Quay a little bit more of a pass. That was the exact same Quay play that he made in Week 1 against Chicago that he returned for a touchdown that led him into the concussion protocol. This time he couldn't hang on to it. I'm, I guess, more upset about a cornerback not being able to hang on to a pick than I am a middle linebacker, but those were both there for the taking. And if you make both of those plays, Packers probably win by 10 points. They don't make those plays. They don't stand up defensively, and the zone defense was soft and bad at the end of the game. Joe Barry, we said all offseason we were hoping that Jordan Love would be as good as bad Aaron Rodgers last year, and we were hoping the defense would take a quarter step forward from where they were in 2022. Again, week one was okay for the most part against Chicago. Week two was more of the same. Week two was a lot of what we saw early in the year in 2022. And for the fans that already want to see Joe Barry gone or are shocked that he even came back after last year, this is just more ammo. This is just more on the resume for fans to get mad about for how awful they looked yesterday. It's not all their fault, but it not good. 446 yards given up, two turnovers they couldn't capitalize on, just couldn't get a stop when they really needed it. That was one thing not to like. My number two thing not to like, A.J. Dillon, he had a chance with Aaron Jones on the shelf yesterday to have a big game. It's not all on him. I've watched some of the all-22 footage today. What does he end up with here? Let me get the box score. He was under four yards a carry. 15 carries, 55 yards, 3.7 yards a carry. I think he had a catch or two, one catch for eight yards. It was a chance for him in the showcase spot to have a bounce-back game. He was... Pretty good in his rookie year at the end of that. He was pretty good in 2021. Felt like he took a half step back in 2022. 13 carries for 19 yards in the opener. And then with Jones down, 15 carries for 55 yards. And several missed opportunities where it just looked like he tripped over his own feet. Again, on the all-22, 
when you look at some of the viewpoints from behind the Packer line of scrimmage, especially on that third and one, on that three and out in the fourth quarter where he couldn't pick up a yard, and that's one thing that Packer fans have been hammering A.J. Dillon for on Twitter is that he's a 260-pound back or a 250-pound back. His whole thing is power and being able to lower his shoulders and move guys forward. He should be an elite short yardage back, and he doesn't seem to be that way. That was a problem all last year, and that continued yesterday. On that third and one, though, with Royce Newman in for the injured Elton Jenkins, there was nowhere to go. When you see the the behind-the-line scrimmage, look at that. It was a stone wall. I mean, you can lower your shoulders and try to bury somebody, but it was a lot of congestion at that point of attack. Once I saw that angle of it, I thought, all right, I don't know. (laughs) He didn't didn't really have anywhere to go. Again, though, with, with a chance to be the guy and to set the tone, He had so many runs where it just looked like he tripped over his own feet, was unable to get out of his own way, was dancing too much instead of hitting the point of attack. Just not a good game for A.J. Dillon. The more footage I've seen, the less blame I would put on him, but overall, a poor day for A.J. Dillon. And we like A.J. Dillon. We've said that before. We love A.J. Dillon. We love that he's the mayor of Door County. We love that he loves his spot in Green Bay. We all cheer for him. It was a rough year last year, and it's been a rough two games so far this year. He needs to show more. We were hoping for that yesterday with Jones down, and it just didn't come to be. And the third thing I really didn't like was the conservative play calling from Matt LaFleur in the fourth quarter. Matt LaFleur got outcoached in the fourth quarter by Arthur Smith. LaFleur had a pretty good game entering the fourth quarter. He had his team with 24 points despite all the injuries. They were up 12 points. And then to mismanage parts of that game clockwise and to go ultra conservative after letting Jordan Love rip for the first three quarters, I didn't quite understand that. The last three drives were all three and outs you got to do better when you have a lead. The defense was bad, but you have to give them a breath. You have to get your offense and keep them on the field. That's a third thing that we did not like from Sunday. A.J. Dillon, the defense overall, specifically the rush defense, and conservative play calling from LaFleur. Now, things we liked, Jordan Love. Yes, the last three drives were not good. Three three three-and-outs. The one three-and-out was three runs to A.J. Dillon, and then the other three-and-out, four-and-out, was the final drive of the game, which, again, given the circumstances, you would have loved to see more. You would have really enjoyed at least a couple completed passes and entertaining the idea of getting Anders Carlson out there for a 55-yard field goal or a 60-yard, at least an attempt to try to win the game. Given the circumstances, I'm not really that upset with that last drive from Jordan Love, although you'd love to have seen more. Overall... He threw for 150 yards. He would have had way more yardage on two defensive pass interference penalties that picked up about 70 yards, which cost us. If you have the over on Jordan Love, 3,350 yards passing on the year, those DPI yards don't count for anything. But he could have had about 70 more yards on defensive pass interference penalties. Three touchdowns, no turnovers. Through two weeks, and again, it's two weeks, Jordan Love has six touchdowns, no interceptions, and the top quarterback rating in the league. We take that. You take it every single time. If you would have told us that before the year began, that through two weeks he'd be the top-rated quarterback in the league with six touchdowns and no turnovers, there wouldn't be a single Packer fan that would not take that. This is, again, why I compare it to 2008. 2008 had a lot of games like that where the Packers lost a tight game, but you loved what you saw from Aaron Rodgers. I feel the same way about Jordan Love on Sunday. Not perfect, missed some wide receivers, not good late. For the most part, though, a solid game, and he's way low on the list of reasons this team did not win on Sunday. Love Jaden Reed, too. Another thing we liked was Jaden Reed and Dontavian Wicks. Throw them both in there. No Christian Watson. Romeo Dobbs was bottled up for the most part, had a couple of catches. 
good showing from the rookie wide receivers. You already liked what you saw from Jaden Reed in the offseason and in week one. He only added to that with a couple of touchdowns on Sunday. And Dontavian Wicks had two catches, the one 32-yarder for a touchdown. He seems to be a guy who knows where to sit, who knows how to get space, makes the catch with his hands and his body, and it has some speed to turn it upfield. A lot to like there, too. One thing I did like from the defense on Sunday was Kenny Clark. To me, he was one of the few that stood out. Quay Walker dropped the pick. He had 17 tackles. He's probably another one, too, that stood out, at least on the defensive side of the football. Kenny Clark dominated the line of scrimmage for a lot of that game. You wish it would have resulted in more tackles for loss or sacks. He was in Ritter's kitchen, though, specifically in the first half. I thought a pretty good game from Kenny Clark on what was ultimately a pretty bad game overall for the defense. It ends up being a 25-24 to loss, like a 2008 loss. A lot to feel good about. Hopefully they learned something about closing games. Hopefully a young team has something now in their subconscious, in their cerebellum, to know that when they get in that situation again, and they'll be in that situation again where they have a two-score lead in the fourth quarter, they can call back to what didn't work in this game and make the adjustments. Ryan Wood, who is a Packer beat reporter, had a tweet, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it up, Ryan Wood had a tweet after the game that said something to the effect of he's never seen guys studying in the locker room after a brutal loss like that the way he saw on Sunday. He didn't seem to hint that there was any kind of dejection. Clearly, everybody wants to win every game. His take, though, from the postgame locker room was that these guys were in their huddles, in their different groups, the linebackers of the linebackers and the cornerbacks of the cornerbacks and the quarterbacks all huddling together, and they were going over things that they can fix things that they learned from the way that game went. You love to hear that from a young team in a 25-24 to loss. Now let's talk about the injuries. Aaron Jones, he kind of got the feeling he wasn't going to play. Hopefully he can be back by Sunday for the home opener against the Saints. I'm not holding out a ton of hope with a hamstring injury. It may be a few more weeks for Aaron Jones. Christian Watson hopefully is a little bit closer. Two of your most dynamic playmakers not on the field, and you still scored 24 points with essentially a rookie quarterback on the road on Sunday. Again, pretty good. David Bakhtiari, this is what Matt LaFleur had to say at the end of the game. Let me get the right tweet up here. He was annoyed at these questions at the end of the game. David Bakhtiari did not practice all week leading into week one. Then he went out and played in Chicago and played well. He graded out as one of the highest graded tackles in the NFL. He did not practice all week heading into Sunday. And then all of a sudden he was inactive on Sunday afternoon at about 11 o'clock. The reports that I heard were that perhaps David Bakhtiari is just not going to be playing in turf games anymore because of the balky knee and because of his feelings on turf stadiums. Aaron Rodgers went down on the turf on Monday night, tore his Achilles. David Bakhtiari went on Twitter and was going at it all week long last week about how these turf situations are not good for players. They need to fix it. The NFL needs to get in there and do something differently, and injuries continue to happen. He was just, and has been, but even more so after the Rodgers injury, vehemently against turf games. Then to not practice all week, how did he even tweak anything? You know what I mean? It's one of those things where if he didn't practice all week, how did he tweak something? This feels to me like David Bakhtiari said, I am not going to play in turf games. I don't have any source for that. Just based on the way things went, that's the feeling that I am getting and a lot of Packer fans are getting uh, as to what happened with David Bakhtiari on Sunday. Here's what Matt LaFleur said when that question was posed to him in the postgame. So Bakhtiari, was that uh, a turf decision? No. I, don't, I, I mean, we all know that Dave's been dealing with this, and so, no. So could this be a thing where he doesn't play in any game? Uh, you guys, I, I, I'm not going to get into that. Like, we all know this has been 
This is two years now. So I'm not going to get into it. It's probably going to be like this from here on out. And that was that. If David Bakhtiari doesn't play in turf games, he's not going to play for four more games this year. I guess it's not a ton. I guess you could talk yourself into, all right, if he really is a health risk on turf. And we saw Elton Jenkins go down. That was another huge component of yesterday's loss. Not only were you down your top two most dynamic playmakers, you were down your best offensive lineman in Bakhtiari, and then you lost your second best offensive lineman, Elton Jenkins, early in the game. On that play, Jenkins got run into by A.J. Dillon, another part of Dillon's day that was not too good. He ran a little too far on the right side and rolled up on Elton Jenkins' knee. Sounds like Jenkins has an MCL issue, which is not ideal, but obviously could be a lot worse for a guy who just came back from an ACL last year. He's probably going to miss some time, too. It, it just feels to me like Bakhtiari is taking a stand against turf and is not going to play on turf games. This led to, of course, a lot of Packer fans in pre- and post-game saying, look, if he's not going to play in these games, he's getting played, paid $20 million a year. And I saw one Packer reporter or blogger that broke it down that since his injury in 2020, he signed that big contract, then he got hurt basically the next week. They broke it down where he is making $80,000 a snap. <laughs> Because of how limited he's been. And look, it was a horrible injury. Take nothing away from that. And it took him a long damn time to come back from that injury. And a lot of, I'm sure, rigorous rehab to come back from that injury. And I take nothing away from that. That's what the breakdown was, though. $80,000 a snap. His contract and how outspoken he is and... Him maybe potentially yesterday not playing just because it was a turf game, even though it sounds like he was medically cleared to play, that's going to get fans upset. And fans are saying, trade him, cut him, get rid of him. If this is what it's going to be, then get rid of him. I don't think they can do that, first of all. They are in a cap situation right now that is really tight. I just think with the legality of it in terms of the legal salary cap structure of the NFL, if they cut him or trade him at this point, I just don't think they can do it with the amount of cap that they would have to absorb by the rules of the NFL. The trade deadline is week six, but my understanding is if they were going to trade him, they would have had to do it in the offseason. That's why when Goody met with the media in August at some point, those were the first questions he was getting peppered with, and then he said, we are not trading Bakhtiari before the year, and he shut that all down. I don't think logistically they're actually able to trade him or cut him That was a lot of the conversation before the game when he was suddenly listed as inactive. And then, of course, after the game, after a tough loss where you really could have used your big old left tackle out there to protect to protect uh, Jordan Love and to open some holes maybe for A.J. Dillon on a day where you didn't have Aaron Jones. Maybe you get a few extra yards. Maybe you pick up a third down and one that you couldn't have picked up if Bakhtiari's out there. Fans are pretty angry, and understandably so, given the contract and given the way things have gone and how outspoken Bakhtiari has been. We'll see if he's out there in week three. I would guess he's not going to practice this week, and if he's out there, maybe that just lends more credence to the idea that he just is on a strike. <laughs> he's he's just not going to do it. He's not going to play in turf games. They have three or four turf games remaining if that is the case. But I just I don't think that they are in a spot financially where they're actually even able to trade him. LaFleur pretty agitated by the end of that interview and by those those questions post-game. One and one on the year. Two road games, you blew out your hated rival, you had a game 80% through, looked like you were going to start for the first time in franchise history 2-0 on the road, but an implosion, and all elements failure in the fourth quarter leads to a one-point loss at the hands of the Falcons, and now you get set for the home opener 
Noon kickoff, Lambeau Field with the Saints in town. Saints play tonight with the Saints in town on Sunday. What else happened in the NFL? We'll do a real quick rundown. We went 2-2 two and two on our bets over the weekend, so we're 5-5 five and five on the year. Two Monday nighters this week, the Saints in Carolina. I kind of like the Saints minus three in that game. I don't think the Panthers are good at all. Browns and Steelers in Pittsburgh. Steelers trying to avoid an 0-2 start. They are two-point underdogs to Cleveland. We saw the Bills bounce back in a big way. We covered there over the Raiders 38-10. Josh Allen looked like MVP Josh Allen. The Bengals. Rough start again for Joe Burrow, and he was limping around at the end of that game. Ravens beat the Bengals in Cincy 27-24. Bengals are 0-2 for the second straight year. I can already tell you I'm going to walk into that mousetrap next week when the Lions come out because I'm going to talk myself into no way the Bengals start 0-3. This is a classic Week 3 trap where you get a team like Cincinnati. They're 0-2 on the year, and as a gambler, you're thinking to yourself, there's no way fill-in-the-blank team starts 0-2, and then they get blown out in Week 3, and you say to yourself, oh, they're just a bad team. (laughs) They are just a bad team because in my mind, the Bengals are a good team that has started 0-2, and they will win because they have to in Week 3. They may just be a bad team. Ravens are 2-0. Seahawks beat the Lions. That was big. Everybody in the NFC North lost, too. That's another little spin zone for the Packer fans out there. Everybody in the NFC North lost. Seahawks beat the Lions in overtime in Detroit, 37-31. Titans got their first win against the Chargers, 27-24. Justin Fields looks awful. He looks just, he's so, he looks so bad again in Week 2. He's not it. And the Bears might be back to the drawing board again. For those that were upset about some of the late passes by Jordan Love and the Packers on Sunday, look at Justin Fields in Year 3. We've got a quarterback in his fourth start that leads the league in quarterback rating. They have a quarterback in the third year that they were banking on being a franchise quarterback, and it looks like they're headed to the top of the draft again. Just look no further than that. Buccaneers win 27-17. Chiefs ugly win in Jacksonville 17-9. Colts hung on against Houston on the road 31-20. The Niners and Rams 30-23. Rams, though, with four seconds left as nine-point underdogs kick a 30-yard field goal. Thank you, Sean McVay. For the, I didn't have money on it, but if you had money on the Rams plus nine and Sean McVay kicked a meaningless field goal as time expired, what a cover there. Backdoor cover city. Don't tell me the coaches don't know the spreads. 30-23. to 23. Giants were down 28-7 to seven at the hands of the Cardinals in Arizona. Storm back and win 31-28. The Zach Wilson Jets are as bad as we thought they would be, and that Cowboy defense might be the best in the NFL. They win easily 30-10. to 10. Russell Wilson almost had a comeback against the Commanders, had the Hail Mary, and then needed a two-point conversion to tie, couldn't get it done. Commanders are 2-0, 35-33, and the Dolphins beat the Patriots. They're another team that I think is okay. They're 0-2. I might fall into that week three trap as well. They lose at home to Tua. Tua looks great. That Dolphin offense is humming. 24-17 winner there. Let's talk about college football real quick. We got a third straight Chris game. We said on Friday's podcast with Georgia Southern at Camp Randall, and the first two games looking very Christian, where you won a game by three touchdowns, you should have won by 40 in the first week. In the second week, you lose a game that you should have won where you were a touchdown favorite. I said in week three, if we are to see a difference, maybe week three we'd see the 40, 45, 50-point win that we think we will see. And I said on Friday, if it's something like 21-13 in the third quarter and then they pull away late, that's going to be another one where you feel like, oh, that kind of felt like a Paul Chris game. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> they were down 14-7 in the third quarter, Georgia Southern. Down 14-7. Eventually, they'd get a 21-14 lead, 21-13, like we said, 21-14. And they do pull away. They do cover. They get a 35-14 win. They were 20-point favorites. They win by 21. It is the first cover 
in the Luke Fickle era. We will take it. Tanner Mordecai, kind of blah again, 19 of 30, 236 yards. Didn't turn the ball over. Braylon Allen, what a weird game. We said on Friday, I felt like after the meeting he had with Fickle last week that he would come out and get a lot of carries early. He got no carries. And then I started to think the reverse. You hear all week about a meeting he had with Luke Fickle, and then he doesn't get a carry in the first half. He got one touch in the first half. And then I start to think, well, maybe that was more of a disciplinary thing. Why are they not giving him the ball? Eventually, they did. Allen had 12 carries, 94 yards, scored two second-half touchdowns. He was a big part of pulling away at the end. And then Fickle did say at the end of the game that Braylon Allen got dinged up at practice, and that's one of the reasons they were limiting his touches on Saturday. Fair enough. Chibray DK had an okay game, three catches, almost 60 yards. 35-14 to 14 win. I don't know. Fairly uninspiring, but they're 2-1. and one. And now they head to Purdue, the reigning Big Ten West champions for the conference open on Friday. I will never get used to Friday college football games for so long. For decades, they stayed away from Friday so they would not conflict with Friday Night Lights with high school football. At Purdue, Purdue is 1-2. and two. They were the Big Ten West champions last year. Aiden O'Connell, their really successful quarterback for the past two years, he is in the NFL and apparently impressing people in Las Vegas for the Raiders as their backup quarterback. So they are down a lot of the key parts that led them to a Big Ten West championship last year. This is going to be a test. Based on what we've seen through the first three weeks, every game is going to be a test. Until proven otherwise, my feeling is that every game is going to be a pretty good test for this team. They open, the Badgers open as seven-point favorites, just like they were at Washington State. Seven-point favorites at Purdue. That's a 6 o'clock kickoff on Friday night. Then they're home against Rutgers on Saturday, October 7th, before a big showdown with Iowa after that. Every game, though, I'm not confident one way or the other right now with what we've seen through three weeks, 2-1 and one through the non-conference schedule. And we'll wrap up on the Brew Crew. Let's play the Mark Canna Grand Slam from Saturday, shall we? 5-5 five, five games Saturday night. This one had Ryan Braun Grand Slam 2008 vibes 90 to 90 feet away. Canna on the first pitch. It's way back. It's going to be Electrifying moment on the first pitch. That was so electric. And the bat flip. He threw that bat into Lake Michigan. The bat flip was just as epic as the hit. Mark Canna, they're going to have to pick up his option, right? I know they have this glut of outfielders that are on their way up. They've got Garrett Mitchell maybe coming back this year now. He started a rehab assignment in Nashville. He may be back in the big league level by the end of this week or mid-next week, he could be on his way back. They did send Joey Weimer down. They had to. We all love Joey Weimer. We all love the mullet. He's a very good defender, one of the best outfield defenders in the league already. Not great at the plate right now in a horrible slump. They had to send him down. But you've got Weimer. You've got Mitchell. You've got Freelick, who was good over the weekend. You've got Churio coming up. They have all of these good young outfielders. They may have to pick up Mark Canna's option with the way he's playing. What a jolt he has been in this offense. Him and Carlos Santana. You know what this reminds me of? It is the offensive version of the trades that David Stearns pulled off in 2019. Remember in 2019 when they needed pitching, and at the deadline they picked up Jordan Lyles and who was the relief pitcher? Drew Pomeranz. And neither Lyles nor Pomeranz had good numbers with the teams they were with prior. And I remember at the deadline in 2019, people saying, this is who we got. We needed pitching, and we got a guy with a 5 ERA in Jordan Lyles and a guy who's coming off of injury in Drew Pomeranz. And we all had a skeptical eye, 
And then how good were those two down the stretch? Jordan Lyles will never duplicate what he did in Milwaukee the second half of that 2019 season where he went 7-1 and one in a 10-game stretch with an ERA a little over two, and Pomerantz became a lockdown setup guy out of the bullpen, and he signed a massive contract in San Diego the year after that. They were both crucial elements on a playoff team, even though at the time we thought, ugh. I feel the same way about Santana and Canna. This team needed offense. They get Carlos Santana. They get Mark Canna. And what was our reaction? Ugh, this is what we got. We were hoping for Shehoi Itani. <laughs> we were hoping for a Juan Soto-type bat. But both of those guys have been integral parts of this big run they've been on. Santana, he had, what was it, two home runs on Friday. He's one away from 300. He's been excellent defensively at first base. And then Mark Canna, after the Grand Slam on Saturday that gave them the lead and the win, he had two more hits on Sunday, even though he was in a spot in the 10th inning with the bases loaded and one out where a sack fly would have won the game. Couldn't come through there. Had two more hits, though, on Sunday. He is now batting 319 with an OPS of 878, seven doubles and five home runs, and playing pretty shorthanded defense in the outfield. He has a team option that he has no say in. If the Brewers pick it up, he is a Brewer next year. It's not a mutual option. He is getting paid $10 million this year. Brewers are picking up part of that. And then he has an option for $11.5 million next year. It's getting to a point where you almost have to pick that up. I'm not expecting Mark Hanna. If they do pick it up, my expectation is not that Mark Hanna is going to be this way the entirety of the year next year where he's hitting 320 with a 900 OPS and 25 home runs and 100 runs driven in. But if he can be what his career norms are, or maybe a little better, where he's 260, 265, 20 home runs, 75, 80 driven in, with the market the way that it is, that's not a bad get if you're paying him 11 or $12 million. This conversation among Brewers fans started maybe two or three weeks ago, and now you're thinking you almost have to pick it up the way that he's playing. They do have a disappointing loss on Sunday. Like I said, they had the bases loaded, bottom of the 10th inning with only one out and could not get that run across. National score on the top of the 11th, Brewers could not respond. In the bottom of the 11th, a rocket off the bat of Rowdy Tellez at the end of that game ends up being a spectacular defensive play, double play that ends the game. And maybe a poor decision at third base by Contreras or Jason Lane on that final play. You lose the game, but you win the series. And we've been preaching for weeks now, just win series. They won the series against Miami. Miami, by the way, then went into Atlanta, the best team in baseball, and blew out Atlanta in a three-game sweep. Baseball, baby. <laughs> There's nothing like it. Miami looked rough in Milwaukee as the Brewers beat them three out of four, and then they put it on the best team in baseball, sweeping the Braves in three games in Atlanta. And they have vaulted now into the second wildcard spot. Brewers win the series against Miami. They win the series against Washington. 5-2 and two on the seven-game homestand. That, combined with the Cubs collapsing like the Hindenburg, has the Brewers all of a sudden with a six-and-a-half-game division lead, seven better in the lost column. Remember on Friday we were talking about you want to be four games up before that last series of the year? Well, right now, six-and-a-half up, seven better in the lost column. The magic number to clinch the division is seven. Any combination of seven Brewer wins and Cubs losses – Gets them the division. The Cubs do open a soft part of their schedule at the end of their schedule. A six-game homestand starting tonight. Brewers embark on their final road trip of the year. They're going to St. Louis first of four. And even though the Cardinals never rallied this year and they've been stuck in last place, don't think that that Cardinal dark magic cannot impact the September race. You know 
that they know the history between themselves and the Brewers, and they want to make life difficult for the Brewers. They want to keep that magic number where it is. So even though the Cardinals aren't in the running to win the division or get a wild card spot, they can still have an impact here on who comes out with the NL Central Championship. Even with the good vibes, even with the Brewers rolling since that series in L.A., I am always leery of late-season matchups with the St. Louis Cardinals, regardless of what the records are. First of four in St. Louis tonight, Freddie Peralta on the hill taking on old friend Adam Wainwright. It would just be perfect for Wainwright to throw eight innings of one-run ball tonight. A 6.45 first pitch. The Cubs are at home. The Cubs right now do not have a spot in the playoffs. They have lost five in a row. They start a six-game homestand, three at home against Pittsburgh starting tomorrow, and then three at home against the Rockies this coming weekend. But they went one and five on their six-game road trip, and the Brewers are just knocking on the door of October baseball. That'll do it for us here on your Monday morning. Have a happy, safe work week. We will set up Packers and Saints home opener at Lambeau Field finally this weekend. We will be getting ready on Friday for the Badger conference opener at Purdue, and we'll check in and see where that magic number is at on Friday morning. We'll chat with you then. Have a good work week.